This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, February 3rd, 2023. This is 91.3 KUAF, your public radio station. We are a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. With me to start this week's Friday program, Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Welcome back, Michael. Well, thanks for having me. I hope uh, everyone out there is safe uh, in this wonderful weather. I was going to offer you a lifetime membership to the Kyle Kellum's I Hate Winter Club. I didn't know if you were ready to accept that yet or not. Well, I like winter. I just don't like uh, the extreme portions of winter. The tourism ticker, I don't know how much tourism has happened in the last three days around the state because of the weather. But what is a tourism ticker, which we can find at TalkBusiness.net? What does it tell us about the past few months or year? Well, it tells us that the the tourism industry, which, as we all know, has hit the hardest um, after in March and April of 2020 when the COVID pandemic hit, it has recovered and then some. Um, if we remember, it was on a uh, it was on a good growth pattern before the pandemic hit, and the question was, will will you pick up that momentum? Can you pick up that momentum? And I think the answer, according to our results, is. Not only can you, but they've built on it. So we look at three factors. We look at uh, we survey 17 cities to look at their hospitality tax revenue. We look at uh, state's 2% um, statewide tourism tax, and we look at tourism sector jobs. Uh, in those 17, and this is for January through October, uh, there's a delay in reporting the tax revenue, both through the cities and through the state, so that causes us not to be as current as we'd like to be, but the latest numbers are, again, January through October, that those 17 cities we surveyed, um, their combined hospitality tax collection was $55.2 million. That's up 16%, double digit, uh, compared to last year. And the collections were also, this, this speaks to the momentum, those collections were also 22% above the pre-pandemic period in 2019. Pre-pandemic? So that's pre Yes, pre-pandemic, 22%. So, again, you would have to – the numbers tell the story. It's it's come back and then some. The state's 2% tourism tax in the January through October period was up a little over 18%, 18.3%. That's a, that's a good, healthy increase. And then the, the monthly average of Arkansas tourism industry jobs between January and October uh, was up 9.5%. Uh, a little over 122,000 jobs in the sector, and the sector reached a monthly record or a monthly record uh, in November of 2022. So, um, both tax revenue and jobs again point to um, a clear recovery in the state's tourism sector. And, that, and you know, when you put uh, that, it's the second largest sector in terms of jobs behind the agri sector in Arkansas. So it's it's important uh, to keep tabs on it. I want to encourage people when they go to talkbusiness.net and read the article to then click through to the PDF because it's uh, got all sorts of interesting things. And I'm going to ask you one of those questions you can't answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. There's a there's a graph at that PDF of the 10 top tourism counties. All nine ex- right. experienced up arrows except one, Carroll County, which was down 2.5%. Any idea why? No, Um I, I don't, and we've looked at. I think um, a, a part of it is that um, 
and this is kind of an anecdote, anecdotal answer I'm going to give you, so sure. everyone out there don't, don't think it's the gospel. But one of the things I've been told is that Eureka really reflects more than any other county in Arkansas, a lot of out-of-state travel. Uh, uh, and so if for some reason folks are staying traveling, but they're traveling closer to home, they may not hit Eureka. Um, I do and do not – I am – I like and do not like that anecdotal answer mm-hmm. to some extent because Classy County and Benton County, I think you also get a lot of out-of-state travel, but that's more for business, maybe, uh, and not pleasure like Carroll County, which is, of course, uh, Eureka Springs is in Carroll County. But that's the only answer that I've ever received that makes a little bit of sense, but gotcha. we've, we've, you know, we've not delved into it on a true research um, basis. Well, and Benton and Pulaski County also have a much larger home population that could absorb. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Speaking of but, numbers, you know, oh, go ahead. Springs is, Eureka Springs is doing well. I mean, yeah. the city, uh, their tax revenue is up almost 10%, I believe, uh, going at 9.7%. So the city is doing well, Eureka Springs. So it's just, I think, um, the outlying areas have not, and uh, in, in, I don't have to tell your listeners it's a very rural county, but the outlying areas are not, the beards are not fully recovered. All right. Speaking of numbers going up, Fort Smith sales tax revenue. I think I've said this before, record-breaking year, this time 2022. Yep. The city's portion of the Sebastian County sales tax was $23.5 million. That's up almost 10% uh, from 2021. And 2021 numbers were pretty healthy. Um, I think... I, I know you remember us talking about for the last two or three years, can they keep this up? And they have to put that percentage increase into per- some, some perspective. Um, the revenue was almost 2 million more than city officials budgeted spend. Um, and it's two, a little over 2 million more than the tax brought in in 2020. So um, that's, you know, that's a lot of money to, to deal with the city's um, 1% street tax uh, which is used for maintenance for streets, bridges, and drainage. Um, that's up uh, 7.4% over 2021. Um, now, the one thing, when you talk to city officials, they'll tell you this, you know, these increases are good, but there but there are two factors, uh, or two things they'll respond by saying, look, we're going to continue to budget conservatively conservatively, because we don't know how long this is going to continue. And also, a city, just like a business or a person, their costs go up, you know, so for example, that street tax, the components to build streets, which is steel, asphalt, you know, concrete, those prices have gone up tremendously. So um, it's not like the city's just sitting around with a big pot of extra money. Um, I mean, they do have extra funds and I think they're, again, they're working to try to budget those conservatively, but um, the costs are going up for local, local government. So, uh, it'll be interesting. Hopefully, um, it's our goal to try to report a little bit more on how they're going to handle this increased revenue. Finally, there's an interesting conversation that you had with uh, Eric Mitchell, um, who is the spokesperson for the Fort Smith Police Department, talking about why the FSPD doesn't have what I think is colloquially called a street crimes unit, like the one that has created such a problem in Memphis. Right, yeah, the, the Scorpion unit. You know, this. The news broke out about the Scorpion unit and what it did. I had to admit I was somewhat ignorant that um, they had such focused 
um, almost free range. And I know that's not the right term, but kind of units like that. And so I just asked Eric, um, you know, does the Fort Smith Police Department have that? And he was pretty immediate and pretty direct in his answer and said, you know, they, they'll pull together um, temporary task forces to address certain problems, but they don't have a street crimes unit. And he said that they've just, the reason they don't uh, is that they typically, as he said, quote, foster anger and distrust in the community. And I thought that was, that was interesting. And he said, you know, that such crime units can work, but they really have to have what he said, strong leadership and constant oversight. And, um, you know, so they decided that they would rather focus on community policing, putting people out in the community. Um, they think, they think that has a better, provides a better result in terms of preventing, uh, crime. Um, you know, what I interviewed chief Baker, Fort Smith police chief, Danny Baker, uh, late last year, and he talked about this and he talked about his concern that there was a time that policing practices nationwide were moving back toward community policing, but that it slowed down. And he predicted at the time, um, he said, quote, um, we're still seeing too many egregious incidents that shouldn't be happening. And he suggested in that interview that we're going to see more of them. And uh, unfortunately, he was correct. Yeah, that's. I think that interview ran in November or December. It's worth looking up if you haven't seen it. It's a really good one. Yeah, well, there's a link to it in this story about the that they're not doing the Scorpion units. But um, I, I wanted to kind of look at maybe a couple other large police departments uh, around the state. But to be honest, I just had time, and Eric had provided me enough information, so I wanted to get this out. But I, I, I would be very surprised if other departments around the state have these type of, again, just kind of free range. I don't want to say lawless, but they, as we've learned, as we've learned more about what's going on in Memphis, it, it appeared there was a lawless element to these folks. All right. You can read about all of this and more at uh, talkbusiness.net. And Michael Tilly, I know it's still a few days out, but if you look at the extended forecast for Monday for where you are in Fort Smith, it's a high of 65. It's a heat wave. I'm going to be out catching some rays. <laughs> right. Michael, as always, thank you. Talk to you next week. Yes, sir. In the background is Jerry Gonzalez and the Fort Apache Band. And I'm Robert Ginsburg, your host for Shades of Jazz. We'll hear more from the Fort Apache Band, as well as from Renee Marie, Stanley Clark, Chick Corea, Ron Carter, Dizzy Gillespie, and much more. Tune in to Shades of Jazz every Friday and Saturday, right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz, tonight from 10 to midnight on 91.3 KUAF. You can hear an encore broadcast tomorrow from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3. You can listen to KUAF3 by going to KUAF.com or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF3. And, of course, you can also listen on your digital radio. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. You can be forgiven if you've been unsure just what day of the week it is. Yeah. Maybe you couldn't get to work for a few days this week. Maybe you had children at home learning remotely. Or maybe all that sleet and ice just generally messed up your timing. Well, 
It is Friday, mm-hmm. and with closings, cancellations, and uncertainty, you may have missed some of the news. So, here's some of the week wrapped up for you. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders will deliver the Republican Party's response to President Biden's State of the Union speech Tuesday night. That announcement came from Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. Governor Sanders will deliver the address from Little Rock. KUAF will carry both the State of the Union and the GOP response live Tuesday night with coverage beginning at 8. An Arkansas lawmaker says he and fellow Republicans are hoping to enact stricter sentencing guidelines for both violent and nonviolent offenses. Republican Representative Jimmy Gazaway of Paragould says the goal is to put Arkansas's sentencing laws more in line with federal guidelines. Speaking with Talk Business and Politics yesterday, he said he hopes to eliminate parole entirely for some of the most serious violent crimes like murder and aggravated assault. If we say that they get five years, then that means they're going to do five years. If they get 10 years, that means they're going to do 10 years. There's no more deception in how we operate in the criminal courts. You know, right now, if someone gets 20 years, that may mean that they do three. And oftentimes it does, because under our current parole laws, we have you know, everything from one-fourth all the way down to one-sixth uh, on a lot of crimes. Gazaway says under his plan, people convicted of all other violent crimes and some serious nonviolent offenses could be eligible for release after serving 85 percent of their sentences. He says lawmakers are also looking at ways to help inmates re-enter society after serving their sentence. We're looking at everything from when someone leaves prison, that they get their driver's license, they get a birth certificate, they get all the necessary documents that will help them to go get a job and, and engage in society again. Uh, one of the things that we've heard is that a lot of folks, when they leave prison, immediately have to start paying on their fines and fees, and they've not even been able to get on their feet or get a job yet. And so we, we're looking at delaying for several months, maybe when that first payment would be due. Gazaway says under his proposal, all other nonviolent offenders could be eligible for parole after serving half or a quarter of their sentence. He says he hopes to also increase funding for drug and mental health services in an attempt to cut down on the state's rising prison population. Two Northwest Arkansas companies expanded their paid parental leave policies for United States employees this week. Tyson Foods announced Tuesday its leave program includes eight weeks of paid leave for birth moms and two weeks of paid leave for employees whose spouse or partner recently gave birth. On Wednesday, Walmart also enacted a new policy 10 paid weeks of maternity leave, and six paid weeks for other parents. Walmart and Tyson employ thousands of Arkansas workers. Walmart alone has nearly 55,000 associates in the state. The U.S. is one of the few countries not to mandate paid parental leave. About 74 percent, or 1 million, Arkansas workers do not have access to paid family leave. And 64 percent of Arkansans cannot access unpaid leave under the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act, according to the National Partnership for Women and Families. Bruno Showers, a senior policy analyst for Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families, says some workers can't afford unpaid leave and others do not qualify for it under the act. Um, And then a significant share of private sector workers aren't covered by FMLA just because they haven't worked there for long enough or don't meet the minimum number of hours or the employer doesn't have a sufficient number of employees to be covered by those protections or some of the reasons that workers are kind of left out. Issues surrounding benefits like parental leave were highlighted during the COVID-19 pandemic. Shower says access to paid leave should be available to all new parents because parental leave policies are linked to better health for children and parents and long-term economic benefits. 
Well, you know, honestly, I don't think it's rocket science that it's a good thing for new moms and new dads to be able to spend the formative months and years of, or at least months of their new child's life, developing social bonds with them and spending time with them, taking care of them. I mean, I feel like (laughs) the vast majority of people see the sense in that, right? Walmart and Tyson made these expansions along with other member benefits such as bonuses and wage increases. Revenue in Arkansas was generally above forecast in January, according to this week's report from the State Department of Finance and Administration. Year-to-date net general revenue totaled $4.3 million, 5% higher than one year ago. Gross revenues totaled $4.9 million, a nearly 6% increase from the previous year. Income tax revenue was up 4% in January. Sales tax revenue grew, grew by roughly 2%. Corporate income taxes totaled about $444 million. That's an increase of $42.5 million from the previous year. The Arkansas Razorback indoor track teams both jumped in the latest national polls. The Arkansas women are ranked number one. In the latest poll released on Monday, there are six SEC women's teams in the top ten. And the Arkansas men are now number three in the nation behind only Washington and Texas Tech in the latest poll. Both Arkansas teams are in Albuquerque this weekend for the New Mexico Collegiate Classic. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families' 22nd Annual Soup Sunday is February 5th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. at the Rogers Convention Center. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads, and desserts donated from a variety of local restaurants and vendors, live music, and auction items. 927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Talk radio is very influential. I mean, clearly you're listening right now. Freelance reporter Katie Thornton took a deep dive into one conservative talk radio network in her five-part series, The Divided Dial. Katie partnered with WNYC's On the Media to discuss the history of conservative talk radio and the power that Salem Media Group has over the airwaves. We start our conversation laying out what is the difference between, say, an NPR affiliate station and a Salem radio network station. Just the content, really, first and foremost, is the content. National Public Radio is a journalistic entity. Entity. There is fact-checking, there's rigorous reporting. I mean, to put it into perspective, this series in total came in at about two and a half, you know, almost three hours between the five episodes. That took a lot, a lot, a lot of time. I began you know, kind of scheming up this series in the fall of 2020, really started reporting it in earnest in 2021, and it came out at the very end of 2022. All that for, you know, just just under three hours of content. There are hosts on Salem Radio Network who go on the radio for three hours every single day, and they have to fill that time with compelling, sort of engaging material. The way to, the way to keep people engaged for three hours every single day, both for your own energy level and your own sanity, but also for the, the mechanics and the finances of the company, is not to do hard-hitting journalism for three hours a day. That is just not feasible. And so Salem hosts will get on the radio and talk for three hours, and there isn't necessarily much journalistic integrity or effort behind that. And and in certain instances, they don't claim that there is either. And, and so a company like Salem, you know, is not a journalistic entity. They are an entertainment entity. They also very, very seldom have local hosts on their radio stations. Um, some markets will get a weekday local anchor. That's sort of a special thing. 
Weekends will often have a lot of local voices, but they're not necessarily in the prime slots. They're on Sundays. And so there's not really an emphasis on growing local talent or really hearing local voices. What I think the national hosts do well somewhere like Salem is sort of pick up on some of the political, but more so cultural issues that may be relevant to some folks in different parts of the country and speak specifically to those. So it still can feel somewhat locally tailored and geared toward people all over the country, like in my case in Minneapolis, in your case in Arkansas, um, without actually being local. I think when folks think of conservative media, their gut reaction is to think of Fox News or to think of Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson. But I, I, I think you would argue that conservative talk radio is as influential, if not more influential. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I would argue that it is at least as influential. Talk radio is still a very listened to medium. It's nearly neck and neck with social media for how people get their news, which I think a lot of people don't realize that radio is neck and neck with social media for how people get their news. And another thing that I think gives it so much power, in addition to being so popular, is that it really sort of evades scrutiny. It's very hard to parse. It's hard to document. You can't, you know, control F and search for keywords. It's not as clippable or shareable as a YouTube video. It's not captured in a tweet. You have to listen to hours and hours and hours of this stuff every day in order to really get a sense of what's going on. Also, there aren't necessarily transcripts. Not everything is is documented or, or shared online. And so it's this sort of medium that makes it really easy to share information that is false or, or that might be sort of... Um, half true. Half true, exactly. Or, or starting with a nugget of truth and then going on and saying, you know, this is something that's affecting you. This is a true experience. I have the sole solution. And even if that is that is uh, based in falsehoods or based in sort of wildly incorrect understanding of, of political operations, that's out there. And it just sort of goes into the ether and disappears. But people are hearing this all the time. Yeah. And it's really funny that you got here because my next question is, uh, one of the things that sticks out to me about talk radio is that it can be really difficult to fact check. It's there for a moment. And it's gone the next. You know, there's there's not transcripts, as you talked about. It's very rarely recorded. What impact do you think the ephemeral nature of radio has on its message? Oh, I mean, it just makes it so easy to say pretty much whatever you want. And, you know, it it's here and it's gone. And it's also, not only does that open this window for sort of sharing uh you know, potentially falsehoods or these sort of half-truths or this, or misinformation, it also impacts people in a different way because it's very conversational. It's very approachable. I mean, you have you have hours, potentially hours and hours of time every single day with a one host. I mean, that's more time than most of us spend with our best friends or even maybe some of our family members. You can get to know these hosts very, very well and start to feel as though, you know, you are just sort of having a conversation. And I think that that is not an experience that you get with television. Uh, Maybe you know them well, but they're clearly not, you know, people on TV are not like, I would never see someone on TV as like one one of <laughs> one of us for for lack of a better term, you know. Yeah, a peer or a colleague, yeah. Right, right, exactly. And yeah, certainly not a peer because they're on TV, they're glamorous, etc. You know, I had to do a TV appearance, which was very strange, and I like don't even know how, straight up don't even know how to do my makeup. So I was like, well, I don't know how to go on TV, you know. So <laughs> it's just that is that to me is a world apart. But on radio, it can really start to feel like your friend or your colleague or a family member. And another thing that happens on radio 
The call-in model is like a super engaging, uh, I will say, oftentimes very fun model. And what the call-in model does is it lets you hear from people who, it lets you call in and engage if you want to. Otherwise, it lets you hear from people who might just might be just like you. And so it's this very sort of participatory medium, not really unlike social media in some ways, but you can feel represented in talk radio in a way that I don't think you can be somewhere like, with something like Fox News. Katie Thornton is a freelance reporter and the host of the podcast series, The Divided Dial. You can find every episode of the series in the podcast feed for On the Media. And you can hear more of my conversation with Katie on Sunday at 9 a.m. as part of Weekend Ozarks at Large. This is a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone from her Bella Vista office is Becca Martin-Brown, features editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Uh, how 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 you doing up there in the Northlands? <laughs> <laughs> okay. First of all, I'm at my Bella Vista house because <laughs> I haven't been out of the house for four days. Finally got out Thursday for a little bit, but it's been... Uh, you know, there's lots of hills and windy roads yeah, and, in Bella Vista. And yeah, it's been interesting. I get to sit and listen at night and listen to them hit the stop sign Ugh. at the corner of our street and then find out they can't go forward. Oof. Well, Which is interesting because I used to do the same thing in Fayetteville on Hill Avenue. <laughs> they hit the railroad tracks and start up that hill on Hill Avenue oh, and find right. out they weren't going anywhere. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We're going to get we're going to have temperatures in the 40s, 50s, even 60s by Monday so we can get out and do things. Well, and there are things to do that have been some of them rescheduled just to make it more convenient for that. Perfect. We're going to talk about art this week because we talked about theater last week, mm-hmm. you know, equal opportunity. Absolutely. And there's several things going on. One of them is a reception from 5 to 7 today at Phoenix Arts on Mount Sequoia and say, "Well, I'm going to ask you, can you get up Mount Sequoia?" Yeah, I mean, I did. It's Look, I'll tell you the city of Fayetteville Cruz. I got up one morning because I have a dog that doesn't care what time it is. Uh, and at 4.53, they were working on Eastwood uh, Drive, uh, the city, plowing it, treating it. It's so, pretty amazing. I mean, the the more main the street is, the better it is. I mean, there's some, you know, little curvy one-way or dead-end streets that haven't been touched. But, yeah, if you're careful and you're smart, you can get up Mount Sequoia. Okay. And it's, you know, it's early enough. It's from 5 to 7. You go at 5, it's still light out. The new exhibit is called Aquarius. And it's David Bachman and other artists represented by Phoenix Arts. And so there'll be a little bit of everything. And it's on show right now with the reception tonight. Okay. And regular hours are 1 to 5 Friday, 1 to 6 Saturday, and 1 to 4 Sunday. It's 150 North Skyline Drive in Miller Lodge. Okay. Art Ventures has moved their artist reception for the new exhibit to Sunday. Yes. Conveniently enough, from 11 to 3 with brunch and mimosas. 
I think nowadays you can get to that part of Hill Avenue. It's 20 South Hill Avenue. In a be- God, I love that house. A beautiful old house has been restored. And this art exhibit called Frame of Mind 2023 is an effort to look at the richness and diversity of black art. Their regular hours are noon to six, Wednesday through Sunday. But again, the opening reception is from 11 to three on Sunday. And they run a shuttle from the corner of Church and Center. Right. So you don't even have to go up the hill on Hill Avenue. Let let others do it for you. And Donna Mulholland has a new art exhibit up on Mount Sequoia called Darkness of the Womb. And she's talking about climate change. The reception was supposed to be February 2nd. <laughs> she thought better of that. Yes. And so it will be from 5.30 to 7.30 next Friday, February 10th, with music by Still on the Hill. Of which she and is half. Ex- of which she is half. And if you've never heard Still on the Hill, that's an opportunity you really want to take. And this is all, this all started during COVID, that Donna started doing art, calling it craftivism. And this is the latest installment of it. In the next couple of weeks, because you know that my thing is theater. Mm-hmm. We're going to have Moulin Rouge on stage at the Walmart Center. Yep. We're going to have Little Shop of Horrors on stage at Arkansas Public Theater in Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I saw an early rehearsal and they're already so good. Oh, good. We've got All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten at Fort Smith Little Theater. We've got The Outsiders at Arts Live. We've got Kim's Convenience at Theater Square. Oh, that's right. Speaking of Fort Smith Little Theater in the River Valley, what you doing on Wednesday the 8th? What am I doing on Wednesday the 8th? Well, it's in flux. I've got a lot of different things. You know, after you follow a week where most of where you live is shut down for three or four days, things get uh-huh. shifted. So I really don't know what I'm doing Wednesday the 8th yet. Well, if you can get away, we are having, we meaning the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and the River Valley Democrat Gazette, which is our new baby, are having a shindig on Wednesday the 8th, starting at 645 at Fort Smith Little Theater. And we're going to have snacks, and we're going to have features folks there, in case you want to look at us for some reason. All right. Yeah, I'm really as round as I tell you I am. And then you're invited to stay and see dress rehearsal for the show. Well, now that's a, that's a heck of a deal. So what do I have? And it's all to tell people... Look, at here's what we're doing in the River Valley, because the River Valley kind of needs us to come down there and give them some coverage. So we are. Uh, and, and this River Valley Democrat Gazette, it will be an insert in every Sunday's paper? Yes. And, of course, it has an arts page. There so you if you are interested in this at all, email me at bmartin at nwaonline.com. And I'll get you an invitation so that you can come and hang out with us and until the show starts at 7.30. Okay. Hang out for the show and come for Cake at Intermission. Well, and it's, what does it cost? Email me for an invite. Nothing. Okay, very good. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Calling all aspiring musicians, NPR's biggest music competition is back. I'm Taylor. Welcome to my tiny desk concert. 
and thank you for having me at the tiny desk along with my good buddy here, Stingy. This is um, an interesting setup here. NPR's Tiny Desk Contest is back for 2023. You could join a chorus of your favorite artist in playing the famous office studio. The contest is open to unsigned artists 18 and older. All you have to do is submit a video of yourself performing one song from behind a desk. Entries are open on February 7th through March 13th. For rules and guidelines, visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org. At the tiny desk at NPR. This is Ozarks at Large. We last talked with Danny Cervantes with our Blood Institute uh, when winter started and blood supplies were getting low, it hasn't gotten any better. Danny is back with us on the phone. Uh, limited supply is an accurate description, Danny? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we normally typically like to have a three to five day supply. And when when you hear us scrum, uh, screaming from the top of the mountain, it's because we are um, one day supply or less and it's just Right now, at a, at a, getting to be at a dangerous level for us. When you say a one-day supply or less, let me make sure I understand what that means. That means, like, on a typical average day, the amount of blood that would be needed through your services is all that you have or maybe even a little less? Yeah, yeah that's correct. That means it's a couple of things that go into that. That means it's the amount of blood that's anticipated to come in um, plus what is expected to go out the door on any given day um, equals to a one-day supply. So it's like, um, um, you know, for the for the lack of a better illustration, it's like a little hamster on the, on the, on the wheel just trying to go faster and faster and faster, and it, it, they're getting nowhere because uh, the blood not there's not enough blood coming in the door to continue to fill um, what we need on a daily basis. I know when we talked a couple of months ago, you're coming off the pandemic. The remote the remote work phenomenon meant not as many people were going out to give blood. Then the holidays. Winter storms have uh, made that even worse. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, it's been a roller coaster ride. Um, you know, there'll be some weeks that we do really well, and then some weeks that, that we don't. And um, you know, coming off the holiday season, we t- it took its toll on us because we, we weren't seeing the amount of blood donations we needed on a daily basis. And then um, to top that off, we started experiencing weather two weeks in a row. Um, we started getting a little bit better, and then this latest storm here has really knocked us down. We've seen. Um, a total of, of nine blood drives that are canceled on us here locally, which is which, which is quite it, it's big because we usually do anywhere from 15 to 16 blood drives a week, and and um, you know we had nine of those that canceled on us, which amounted to about 125 donations. Um, and when you put it in perspective, what we need here locally is about 100 a day, anyways. And that's we have our fixed site in Fort Smith, and then our blood drives that go out on a daily basis, and we need about 100. Um, donations a day to keep up with the demand, and we haven't seen anywhere near that over the last week, actually the last two weeks now. Yeah, imagine it, it, if you need 100 a day and you get an ice storm that can shut things down, you can get to the dangerous level where you're at pretty quickly. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. And, and one thing that we want to make sure is, you know, we understand that, that, that some of the, the uh, traveling is treacherous out there, so we want to make sure that everybody stays safe first and foremost. Because, you know, car accidents are a big, a big usage of blood products um, when we have people in car accidents. So we want to make sure that we, want, uh, we don't see the blood usage go up. But we also need to uh, 
to, to make sure that we stress the fact that these next four, four to five days, now that the weather's gone by, are going to be critical for us to get back where we need to get to service our hospitals. If somebody is, it's time for them, they're eligible, what's the easiest way for them to donate? Well, they can go on ARKBI.org, and they can look up some blood drives that are in their, their area. Um, we have our fix site here in Fort Smith that's open Monday through Fridays from 8.30 to 6 p.m., and then on Saturday we'll be open from 9 to 2, and then we're going to do a special opening on Sunday. We're usually not open, open on Sundays, but this Sunday we're going to be open um, from 8 a.m. to noon, accepting all donations. So um, our center is located at 5300 South U Street in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It's just over um, kind of behind um, Randall Ford and off the intersection of Waldron and Rogers Avenue. So, you know, if you just come in, if you want to schedule an appointment, you can call 37, I'm sorry, 877-340-8777, or you can go online as well to, uh, uh, to book that appointment. If you have any questions, give us a call and we'll, uh, We'll try to point you in the right direction. I don't know if you ever talk with your colleagues that happen to be at other blood collection services, but imagine they're having the same challenges. Absolutely. And, and when, you know, weather, it, it, it just takes so little to throw us off. So, so we, we, we have to look at it um, and, and be good stewards of our, our blood supply. So we can't go crazy and just draw everything we can up front because it's, there's a shelf life mm. on, on blood products. And we have to make sure that we have the right type of blood and the right um, amount on the right day. Um, there is a forecast out there that we look at uh, um, on past history to see what we need to supply each hospital. And we don't want to get too much on that. Um, but if we can, if we do get too much, then we definitely look out, um, look to see if we can help our neighbors out. But, yeah, we everybody that experiences this type of, of weather it, it gets, gets put in the same predicament for sure. And finally, how, how long can it take? Let's say... The weather forecast is right. We're back into the 60s early next week. Is is there sort of a pattern that you know you'll be off at least this critical, critical line in a few days? You expect donations we, to pick up? We are hoping that we can get through this and get back on track um, um, through the early part of next week. So by Wednesday, if we're not back on track, then, then you'll probably hear a different message to say, hey, you know, we're still needing people to come out. But it is, it, is, it is a need, everyday need that you, that you hear for us that we try to calculate how much we need per day and try to go out to that many locations to draw that much blood on a daily basis. And if we can't get to that level, then you will hear us continue to, to, to ask for help. And, um, and just remember, this is, this is always a need that's there. Um, a lot of people that um, don't realize, you know, that they need blood products on a daily basis until they experience someone in their family that that is in the hospital or, you know, in emergency room that, that has to have blood products. So there's, you know, there's a way we have to get it there regardless of, of weather or power outages. That hurt us a couple of times last week. Um, um, anything, you know, it, it's kind of like a, the, the, the wolf, wolf go and we got to do our business, spring, sleet, or shine. Um, we we got to get out there and do it. Danny Cervantes is the executive director of Our Blood Institute in Fort Smith. Danny, uh, thank you for your time. Hopefully I don't talk to you for a while. Don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> Absolutely no, man. If we can get you know donors to come out and support us, and we get them you know, geared and, and conditioned to, to know when to come back and, and, and give, you know, become regular blood donors, we would never have this problem. Danny, thanks for your time. Thank you.
This is Ozarks at Large. The 30th anniversary Fat Saturday Mardi Gras Parade will take place on Saturday, February 18th, beginning at 2 p.m., starting on the square in Fayetteville and continuing down Dixon Street. This is a family-friendly event, and all of the proceeds from sponsors will go to the Peace at Home Shelter, as designated by the reigning royalty, Michelle Hale and John Rose. This year's Grand Marshal will be Jeremy Gothrop, Roots Festival organizer and owner of Woodstone Pizza. Parade float entries are available now, and community sponsor and volunteers are also needed. For more information, Fayetteville, Mardi Gras, Com. With me in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 is a former Grand Marshal himself, <laughs> yeah. Kyle Kellams. It's still one of the most fun days of my life. I would hope so. I mean, being a Grand Marshal parade, you get to th- a Mardi Gras parade, yeah, I threw beads and No candy. disadvantages. No. No. There are no disadvantages. Uh, it was a bit cold starting out, and you get to stand up in the back of a car that's, that's going like 10 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm so happy Jeremy is this year's oh, Grand yeah. I love him. Couldn't go to a better person. That's right. Monday in Ozarks at Large, we will dip into our archives for archives. Confused? Well, this week, the winter weather kept Randy Dixon with the David Marble Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History away from the center. So, we're going to go back to August <laughs> when it was warmer, and we're going to re listen to a Pryor Center profile we did about the history of the Razorback Marching Band. That and much more on Monday's show at noon and seven, and also. Available on the podcast. That's right. Yep. Go to your podcast catcher of choice. Is that a thing people still say? Podcast catcher. I, I, sure. Podcast app of choice. Just search for Ozarks at Large and you'll find the latest full episode right there. Frost Fest returns to the Washington County Fairgrounds February 4th from 2 to 7 p.m. This outdoor beer festival features over 40 local and regional breweries, vendors, food trucks, live music, and more. Proceeds to benefit apple seeds and barley, hops, and water. Tickets at fossilcovebrewing.com. This is Ozarks at Large. It is time to talk with Courtney Lanning and find out what Courtney thinks about a new movie, this time True Spirit. Courtney, welcome back to Ozarks at Large. Kyle, thanks for having me. Are you ready to talk about True Spirit? I am indeed. I love movies that are about things that I remember when they happened, and this is the case with True Spirit. This is the true story of a girl from Australia, a 16-year-old, who did technically sail around the globe. Her goal was to circumnavigate the globe unassisted and without pulling into any ports, so sailing nonstop. She succeeded in her goal, but through some technical malarkey, uh, the powers that be decided not to recognize her sailing because I guess she was... She was a couple thousand miles short of needing a total distance to have counted as a true circumnavigation by the, the powers that be, which, to which I say balderdash. <laughs> That's right. She did it. She was on a sailboat by herself as a teenager. And, uh, you know, if you ever even sailed on Beaver Lake, that can be intimidating, let alone being out there on <laughs> the world's oceans. Sometimes I think I would rather take the oceans over Beaver Lake. Mm. That's a scary body of water, Kyle. <laughs> it can be. So in this film, does it um, does it deliver what I think could be the loneliness and and sort of despair of such an endeavor? It does. Uh, this was a surprisingly emotional tale, and interestingly enough, Netflix, I guess, has decided to double down on movies about girls who have to sail through storms, maneuver through storms and bodies of water. You'll remember a couple months ago we chatted about a movie called The Swimmers. Oh yeah. About 
two sisters who pulled a raft of refugees by swimming through a storm uh, to make it to the Greek coast. This is a little different, um, but yes, surprisingly emotional tale. Uh, I really found myself caught up in this girl's attempts to circumnavigate the globe with her supportive family. You know, you get that that crushing loneliness of being alone at sea. There's a, a chunk of the movie where the wind isn't blowing mm. and she's just kind of stranded in the Atlantic Ocean for a week. I think of other movies that have similar themes. There was the one with Robert Redford a few years ago where he's on a sailboat by himself. There's, uh, you know, the George Clooney movie, The Perfect Storm. Does this kind of have that seafaring feel to it? It really does. Um, you know, we brought up The Perfect Storm. I was also reminded of Chris Pine's The Greatest Hours. Um, but, you know, there's there's bits and pieces of other movies in here, too. I um, There's a, a really aggressive reporter that is hounding her every step of the way. And, you know, for that role, I was kind of reminded of Kevin Spacey in 1994's Iron Will. And, you know, the, the isolation... Going out into nature alone. I also saw bits of uh, 2007's Into the Wild. So is it all? Is it all on the water? Most of it, yeah. Um, there are parts where she is, at the beginning, where she is on land, we're introduced to her family. That part drags a little bit, and it can be a little dull. But I'm telling you, once she sets sail, uh, which thankfully happens pretty soon after that, the film really finds its pacing and its strength. Once she's on the water, uh, this is a great entertaining movie for the whole family. True Spirit, and this is on Netflix. Yes, on Netflix today. Uh, also this week, another movie that I think, well, now I'm not sure if this is in theaters or on on streaming, but Knock at the Cabin, M. Night Shyamalan's latest movie. Yes, this will be in theaters. Uh, from what I've seen so far in the reviews, uh, everybody rants and raves about Dave Bautista's performance, and I'm excited. I like Bautista. I like Dave Bautista, too, and the concept is that three people, two adults and a child, have to decide who's going to die to save the world? That's what the trailer shows. Yeah, I, yeah, I think four cultists show up, uh, kind of hold them hostage in their vacation cabin and tells them one of them has to willingly sacrifice themselves to stop the apocalypse. And until they do, bad things are going to happen. What are we going to talk about next week? Next week, I will review a new film called Sharper. It stars Julianne Moore and Sebastian Stan, and it is about ripping billionaires off and scamming them. All right, and I like both of those actors very much. Courtney Lanning's review of True Spirit can be found in today's Arkansas Democrat Gazette. The movie is on Netflix. We will talk again next week. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks, Kyle. See you then. On the latest episode of Undisciplined, we talk bail reform. The Constitution says it's, it's not right to hold you in custody just because of your poverty. So judges should consider the ability to pay. But what I'm telling you is they don't. Nobody looks at that question. Almost nobody does. Listen to Undisciplined for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Earlier uh, this hour, we mentioned that Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has been picked to be uh, the GOP representative to give the uh, response. response, thank you, to President Biden's State of the Union speech next week. Yes. So, this got me thinking. Uh-huh. Has an Arkansan ever done that before? I will admit, I did some research myself yep. to look up and see. Uh, and as far as I could tell, there's only been one yes. other one. A former governor uh, who went on to to take higher office than governor of Arkansas, 
uh, Bill Clinton. He gave the response in 1985. By the way, he was the first ever governor to give the response. Oh, wow. Uh, responses started in 1966 during the Lyndon Johnson administration. Huh. And um, four future presidents have given responses. Okay. We've already mentioned Bill Clinton. Sure. Uh, the first and second years, 1966 and 67, a congressman from Michigan, Gerald Ford. Uh-huh. Uh, along with Irvin Dirksen, a senator from your home state, yeah. Illinois. They, yeah. they, Dirksen is, there's a, a congressional building. I've been in that him. building. Yeah. Uh, so, Although Gerald Ford technically was never elected But he was, president? I said future president. Okay, that's I just said future president. <laughs> uh, Joe Biden. Oh. And the first George Bush. Okay. Uh, would you like to know more trivia about responses? Always. Okay. Uh, the m- most people that have ever given participated in one response, the Republican Party in 1968 had 16 senators and congressmen. 16. I want to see how that worked. I don't know if they were all just sitting and one person spoke, but 16. Wow. Yeah. Or maybe they all had one thing to say. I don't know. And this is in the days of three television networks. Right. <laughs> And what I also don't know and I want to know is when did the responses be start being carried by everyone? Was it at the very beginning? Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. Um, there has only been, by my research, one set of relatives. Hmm. Ted Kennedy in 1982 okay. during Ronald Reagan's administration. Then Joe Kennedy the third, 36 I, years later, yeah. his great-grandnephew. Yeah, that's pretty recent, right? Uh, 2018. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, Harriet Woods of Missouri, first lieutenant governor to ever. Huh. Give a response. That was in 1986. Several governors since Bill Clinton yeah. have done it. Um, the Republican Party started Spanish responses as well as English in 2014. Mm-hmm. The first attorney general, state attorney general, mm-hmm. was Xavier Becerrenda. I hope I pronounced that correctly, from California. He was the state attorney general. He delivered the Spanish response for the Democratic Party in 2019. Huh. Guess who the first person was who was not an, off- an elected office holder at the time? To give a response. What was the year? Uh, I didn't write that down, but recent. <laughs> very recent. Very recent. Uh, is it someone I should know? It's someone you've heard of. Um, LeBron uh, James. No, no, okay. no, no. Had held, had been a state legislator before, but at the time that this person gave the response was not holding elected office. Beto? Stacey Abrams. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It was close. All right. So that is your response to the state. Oh, and by the way, the first year that a president delivers this speech, it's not called State of the Union. Right. Because the idea is you're a brand new CEO and you don't know the State of the Union. Right, exactly. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, we go behind the meaning and the making of a polarizing Puerto Rican classic, a salsa song with a dramatic topical ending right at the height of the AIDS crisis. I love the song musically. It's just I hate what the song does. Not even what it says, it's what it does. That's this week on Latino USA. Latino USA, Sunday afternoon at 3 on KUAF. You can always listen to us wherever you are by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. Also on Sunday will be Weekend Ozarks at Large. That's at 9 o'clock Sunday morning. Matthew's longer interview with uh, Katie Thornton about Divided Dial will be on that, plus much more. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Barling. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Michael Tilly, 
Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Our friends in the newsroom at KUAR contributed today as well. Anna Pope contributed news about Walmart and Tyson increasing parental leave. And Roby Brock from Talk Business and Politics helped us out as well. Don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent edition of Ozarks at Large by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. And go to OzarksAtLarge.com to find past full episodes as well as individual stories and interviews. That's right. And if you are, you know, by chance looking for a link to the Divided Dial, you're looking for a link in a story that we've mentioned, you'll find that in the individual stories by going to OzarksAtLarge.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. We'll end our show as an inspiration to future Tiny Desk contestants with music from a former Tiny Desk contestant and winner, Fantastic Negrito. If you're looking for a desk to perform music behind, well, we've got one here at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Just let us know. 